1: Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest.
0: My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight, and taken the time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading A Journey
1: to the Centre of the Earth, chapters 30 and 31, by
0: Jules Verne. In the last chapter, our adventurers began to set sail across the vast interior sea. In tonight's story, they run into some danger with the very first signs of life in this strange new world.
1: If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and let your body settle in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 30 Terrific Saurian Combat
0: Saturday, August 15th. The sea still retains its uniform monotony. The same leaden hue, the same eternal glare from above. No indication of land being in sight. The horizon appears to retreat before us more and more as we advance. My head, still dull and heavy from the effects of my extraordinary dream, which I cannot as yet banish from my mind. The professor, who has not dreamed, is, however, in one of his morose and unaccountable humours, spends his time in scanning the horizon at every point of the compass. His telescope is raised every moment to his eyes, and when he finds nothing to give any clue to any whereabouts, he assumes a Napoleonic attitude and walks anxiously. I remarked that my uncle, the professor, had a strong tendency to resume his old impatient character, and I could not but make a note of this disagreeable circumstance in my journal. I saw clearly that it had required all the influence of my danger and suffering to extract from him one scintillation of humane feeling. Now that I was quite recovered, his original nature had conquered and obtained the upper hand. And after all, what had he to be angry and annoyed about, now more than any other time, was not the journey being accomplished under the most favourable circumstances was not the raft progressing with the most marvellous rapidity. What, then, could be the matter? After one or two preliminary hems, I determined to inquire. You seem uneasy, uncle, said I, when for about the hundredth time he put down his telescope and walked up and down, muttering to himself. No, I'm not uneasy, he replied in a dry, harsh tone. By no means. Perhaps I should have said, impatient, I replied, softening the force of my remark. Enough to make me so, I think. And yet, we are advancing at a rate seldom attained by a raft, I remarked. What matters that? cried my uncle. I am not vexed at the rate we go at but I am annoyed to find the sea so much vaster than I expected. I then recollected that the professor, before our departure, had estimated the length of the subterranean ocean as at most about thirty leagues. Now we had travelled at least over thrice that distance without discovering any trace of distant shore. I began to understand my uncle's anger. We're not going down suddenly exclaimed the professor. We are not progressing with our great discoveries. All this is utter loss of time. After all, I did not come from home to undertake a party of pleasure. This voyage on a raft over a pond annoys and wearies me. He called this adventurous journey a party of pleasure and this great inland sea a pond. But, argued I, if we have followed the route indicated by the great Saknasem, we cannot be going far wrong. That is the question, as the great, the immortal Shakespeare has it. Are we following the route indicated by the wondrous sage? Did Saknasem ever fall in with this great sheet of water? If he did, did he cross it? I begin to fear that the lay we adopted for a guide has led us wrong. In any case, we can never regret having come this far. It is worth the whole journey to have enjoyed this magnificent spectacle. It is something to have seen. I care nothing about seeing, nor about magnificent spectacles. I came down into the interior of the earth with an object and that object I mean to obtain. Don't talk to me about admiring scenery or any other sentimental trash. After this, I thought it well to hold my tongue and allow the professor to bite his lip until the blood came, without further remark. At six o'clock in the evening, our matter-of-fact guide, Hans, asked for his week's salary and receiving his three Rick's dollars, put them carefully in his pocket. He was perfectly contented
1: and satisfied. Sunday, August 16th.
0: Nothing new to record, the same weather as before. The wind has a slight tendency to freshen up with signs of approaching gale. When I awoke, my first observation was in regard to the intensity of the light. I keep on fearing, day after day, that the extraordinary electric phenomenon should become first obscured, and then go wholly out, leaving us in total darkness. Nothing, however, of the kind occurs. The shadow of the raft, its mast and sails, is clearly distinguished on the surface of the water. This wondrous sea is, after all, infinite in its extent. It must be quite as wide as the Mediterranean, or perhaps even as great as the Atlantic Ocean. Why, after all, should it not be so? My uncle has on more than one occasion tried deep-sea soundings. He tied the cross of one of our heaviest crowbars to the extremity of a cord, which he allowed to run out to the extent of two hundred fathoms. We had the great difficulty in hoisting in our novel kind of lead. When the crowbar was finally dragged on board, Hans called my attention to some singular marks upon its surface. The piece of iron looked as if it had been crushed between two very hard substances. I looked at our worthy guide with an inquiring glance. Tanda, said he. Of course, I was at a loss to understand. I turned round towards my uncle, absorbed in gloomy reflections. I had little wish to disturb him from his reverie. I accordingly turned once more towards our worthy Icelander. Hans, very quietly and significantly, opened his mouth once or twice, as if in the act of biting, and in this way made me understand his meaning. Teeth, cried I with stupefaction, as I examined the bar of iron with more attention. Yes, there can be no doubt about the matter. The indentations on the bar of iron are the marks of teeth. What jaws must the owner of such molars be possessed of? Have we, then, come upon a monster of unknown species, which still exists within the vast waste of waters? A monster more ferocious than a shark, more terrible and bulky than a whale. I am unable to withdraw my eyes from the bar of iron, actually half crushed. Is, then, my dream about to come true? A dread and terrible reality? All day my thoughts were bent upon these speculations and my imagination scarcely regained a degree of calmness and power of reflection until after a sleep of many hours. This day, as on other Sundays, we observed as a day of
1: rest and pious meditation. Monday,
0: August 17th I have been trying to realize from memory the particular instincts of those antediluvian animals of the secondary period which succeeding to the mollusca, to the crustacea, and to the fish, preceded the appearance of the race of mammifers, the generation of reptiles that reigned supreme upon the earth. These hideous monsters ruled everything in the seas of the Secondary Period, which formed the strata of which the Jura Mountains are composed. Nature had endowed them with perfect organization. What a gigantic structure was theirs, what vast and prodigious strength they possessed. The existing saurians, which include all such reptiles as lizards, crocodiles and alligators, even the largest and most formidable of their class, are but feeble imitations of their mighty size, the animals of ages long ago. If there were giants in the days of old, There are also gigantic animals. I shuddered as I evolved from my mind the idea and recollection of these awful monsters. No eye of man had seen them in the flesh. They took their walks abroad upon the face of the earth thousands of years ago, before the age of man came into existence, and their fossil bones discovered in limestone. Have allowed us to reconstruct them anatomically and thus to get some faint idea of their colossal formation. I recollect once seeing in the great museum of Hamburg the skeleton of one of these wonderful saurians. It measured no less than thirty feet from nose to tail. Am I, then, an inhabitant of the earth of the present day, destined to find myself face to face With a representative of the antediluvian family. I can scarcely believe it possible. I can hardly believe it true. And yet, these marks of powerful teeth upon the bar of iron can there be a doubt from their shape that the bite is the bite of a crocodile? My eyes stare wildly and with terror upon the subterranean sea. Every moment I expect one of these monsters to rise from its vast, cavernous depths. I fancy that the worthy professor, in some measure, shares my notions, if not my fears, for, after an attentive examination of the crowbar, he cast his eyes rapidly over the mighty and mysterious ocean. What could possess him to leave the land, I thought? as if the depth of this water was of any importance to us. No doubt he has disturbed some terrible monster in this watery home, and perhaps we may pay dearly for our temerity. Anxious to be prepared for the worst, I examined our weapons, and saw that they were in a fit state of use. My uncle looked on at me, and nodded his head approvingly. He too... Has noticed what we have to fear. Already the uplifting of the waters on the surface indicates that something is in motion below. The danger approaches. It comes nearer and nearer.
1: It behooves us to be on the watch.
0: Tuesday, August 18th. Evening came at last, the hour when the desire for sleep caused our eyelids to be heavy. Night there is not, properly speaking, in this place, any more than there is in summer in the Arctic regions. Hans, however, is immovable at the rudder. When he snatches a moment of rest, I really cannot say. I take advantage of his vigilance to take some little repose. But two hours after, I was awakened from a heavy sleep by an awful shock. The raft appeared to have struck upon a sunken rock. It was lifted right out of the water by some wondrous and mysterious power, and then started off twenty fathoms' distance. Eh? What is it? cried my uncle, starting up. Are we shipwrecked or what? Hans raised his hand and pointed to where, about two hundred yards off. A large black mass was moving up and down. I looked with awe. My worst fears were realised. It is a colossal monster, I cried, clasping my hands. Yes, cried the agitated professor. And there yonder is a huge sea lizard of terrible size and shape. And farther on behold, a prodigious crocodile. Look at his hideous jaws and that row of monstrous teeth. Ha! He is gone. A whale, a whale, shouted the professor. I can see her enormous fins. See, see how she blows air and water. Two liquid columns rose to a vast height above the level of the sea, into which they fell with a terrific crash. Waking up the echoes of that awful place. We stood still, surprised, stupefied, terror-stricken at the sight of this group of fearful marine monsters, more hideous in the reality than in my dream. They are of supernatural dimensions. The very smallest of the whole party could with ease have crushed our raft and ourselves with a single bite. Hans, seizing the rudder which had flown out of his hand, puts it harder weather in order to escape from such dangerous vicinity, but no sooner does he do so than he finds it is flying from Cilia and Carabidus. To leeward is a turtle about forty feet wide, and a serpent quite as long, with an enormous and hideous head peering from out the waters. Look which way we will. It is impossible for us to fly. The fearful reptiles advanced upon us. They turned and twisted about the raft with awful rapidity. They formed around our devoted vessel a series of concentric circles. I took up my rifle in desperation. But what effect can a rifle ball produce upon the armor scales with which the bodies of these horrid monsters are covered? We remain still and dumb from utter horror. They advance upon us, nearer and nearer. Our fate appears certain, fearful and terrible. On one side, the mighty crocodile, on the other, the great serpent. The rest of the fearful crowd of marine prodigies have plunged beneath the briny waves and disappeared. I am about to fire at any risk and try the effect of a shot. Hans, the guide, however, interfered by a sign to check me. The two hideous and ravenous monsters passed within fifty fathoms of the raft and then made a rush for one another, their fury and rage preventing them from seeing us. The combat commenced. We distinctly made out every action of the two hideous monsters. But to my excited imagination, the other animals appeared about to take part in the fierce and deadly struggle the monster, the whale, the lizard, and the turtle. I distinctly saw them every moment. I pointed them out to the Icelander, but he only shook his head. Tva, he said. What? two only, does he say? Surely he is mistaken, I cried in a tone of wonder. He is quite right, replied my uncle, coolly and philosophically, examining the terrible jewel with his telescope and speaking as if he were in a lecture room. How can that be? Yes, it is so. The first of these hideous monsters has the snout of a porpoise. The head of a lizard, the teeth of a crocodile, and it is this that has deceived us. It is the most fearful of all antediluvian reptiles, the world renowned Ichthyosaurus, or great fish lizard. And the other? The other is a monstrous serpent, concealed under the hard vaulted shell of the turtle, the terrible enemy of its fearful rival, the Pleosaurus. Or sea crocodile. Hans was quite right; the two monsters only disturbed the surface of the sea. At last, have mortal eyes gazed upon two reptiles of the great primitive ocean. I see the flaming red eyes of the ichthyosaurus, each as big or bigger than a man's head. Nature, in its infinite wisdom, has gifted this wondrous marine animal with an optical apparatus of extreme power, capable of resisting the pressure of the heavy layers of water which rolled over him in the depths of the ocean where he usually fed. It has by some authors truly been called the whale of the saurian race, for it is as big and quick in its motion as our king of the seas. This one measures no less than a hundred feet in length, and I can form some idea of his girth when I see him lift his prodigious tail out of the waters. His jaw is of awful size and strength, and according to the best-informed naturalists, it does not contain less than a hundred and eighty-two teeth. The other was the mighty Pleosaurus, with a short, stumpy tail. With fins like a bank of oars in a Roman galley. Its whole body was covered by a carapace or shell, and its neck, as flexible as that of a swan, rose more than thirty feet above the waves, a tower of animated flesh. These animals attacked each other with inconceivable fury. Such a combat was never seen before by mortal eyes, and to us, who did see it, it appeared more like the phantasmagoric creation of a dream than anything else. They raised mountains of water, which dashed in spray over the raft, already tossed to and fro by the waves. Twenty times we seemed on the point of being upset and hurled headlong into the waves. Hideous hisses appeared to shake the gloomy granite roof of that mighty cavern hisses which carried terror to our hearts. The awful combatants held each other in a tight embrace. I could not make out one from the other. Still the combat could not last forever, and woe unto us, whichsoever became the victor. One hour, two hours, three hours passed away, without any decisive result. The struggle continued with the same deadly tenacity, but without apparent result. The deadly opponents now approached, now drew away from the raft. Once or twice, we fancied they were about to leave us altogether, but instead of that, they came nearer and nearer. We crouched on the raft, ready to fire at them at a moment's notice poor as the prospect of hurting or terrifying them was. Still, we were determined not to perish without a struggle. Suddenly, the ichthyosaurus and the pleosaurus disappeared beneath the waves, leaving behind them a maelstrom in the midst of the sea. We were nearly drawn down by the indraft of the water. Several minutes elapsed before anything was seen again. Was this wonderful combat to end in the depths of the ocean? Was the last act of this terrible drama to take place without spectators? It was impossible for us to say. Suddenly, at no great distance from us, an enormous mass rises out of the waters, the head of the great Pleosaurus. The terrible monster is now wounded done to death. I can see nothing now of his enormous body. All that could be distinguished was his serpent-like neck, which he twisted and curled in all the agonies of death. Now he struck the waters with it as if it had been a gigantic whip, and then again wriggled like a worm, cut in two. The water was spurted up to a great distance in all directions. A great portion of it swept over our raft and nearly blinded us. But soon the end of the beast approached nearer and nearer. His movements slackened visibly, his contortions almost ceased, and at last the body of the mighty snake lay an inert, dead mass on the surface of the now calm and placid waters. As for the Ichthyosaurus, Has he gone down to his mighty cavern under the sea to rest, or will he reappear and destroy us? This question remained unanswered, and we had breathing time.
1: Chapter 31 The Sea Monster Wednesday,
0: August 19th Fortunately the wind which for the present blows with some violence, has allowed us to escape from the scene of the unparalleled and extraordinary struggle. Hans, with his usual imperturbable calm, remained at the helm. My uncle, who for a short time had been withdrawn from his absorbing reveries by the novel incidents of this sea fight, fell back again apparently into a brown study. His eyes were fixed impatiently on the widespread ocean. Our voyage now became monotonous and uniform. Dull as it has become, I have no desire to have it broken by any repetition of the perils and adventures of yesterday. The wind is now north northeast and blows very irregularly. It has changed to fitful gusts. The temperature is exceedingly high. We are now progressing at an average rate of about ten miles and a half per hour. About twelve o'clock, a distant sound as of thunder fell upon our ears. I make a note of the fact without even venturing a suggestion as to its cause. It was one continued roar as of a sea falling over mighty rocks. Far off in the distance, says the professor dogmatically. There is some rock or some island against which the sea, lashed to fury by the wind, is breaking violently. Hans, without saying a word, clambered to the top of the mast, but could not make out anything. The ocean was level in every direction, as far as the eye could see. Three hours passed away without any sign to indicate what might be before us, The sound began to assume that of a mighty cataract. I expressed my opinion on this point strongly to my uncle. He merely shook his head. I, however, am strongly impressed by a conviction that I am not wrong. Are we advancing towards some mighty waterfall which shall cast us into the abyss? Probably this mode of descending into the abyss may be agreeable to the professor, because it would be something like the vertical descent he so eagerly wants to make. I entertain a very different opinion. It is certain that in not many leagues distance there must be some very extraordinary phenomenon, for as we advance the roar becomes something mighty and stupendous. Is it in the water, or is it in the air? I cast hasty glances aloft at the suspended vapours, and I seek to penetrate their mighty depths. But the vault above is tranquil. The clouds, which are now elevated to the very summit, appear utterly still and motionless, and completely lost in the irradiation of electric light. It is necessary, therefore, to seek for the cause of this phenomenon elsewhere. I examine the horizon, now perfectly calm, pure, and free from all haze. Its aspect still remains unchanged. But if this awful noise proceeds from a cataract, if, so to speak in plain English, this vast interior ocean is precipitated into a low basin, if these tremendous roars are produced by the noise of falling waters, The current would increase in activity, and its increasing swiftness would give me some idea of the extent of the peril with which we are menaced. I consulted the current. It simply does not exist. There is no such thing. An empty bottle cast into the water lies to the leeward without motion. About four o'clock, Hans rises, clambers up the mast, and reaches the truck itself. From this elevated position, his looks are cast around. They take in a vast circumference of the ocean. At last, his eyes remain fixed. His face expresses no astonishment, but his eyes slightly dilate. He has seen something at last, cried my uncle. I think so, I replied.
1: Hans came down, stood beside us, and pointed with his right hand to the south. "'Dear near,
0: he said. "'There,' replied my uncle. And seizing his telescope, he looked at it with great attention for a minute, which to me appeared an age. I knew not what to think or to expect. "'Yes, yes,' he cried in a
1: tone of considerable surprise. There it is.
0: What? I asked. A tremendous spurt of water rising out of the waves. Some other marine monster, I cried already alarmed. Perhaps. Then let us steer more to the westward, for we know what we have to expect from antediluvian animals, was my eager reply. Go ahead, said my uncle. I turned towards Hans. Hans was at the tiller, steering with his usual imperturbable calm. Nevertheless, if from the distance which separated us from this creature, a distance which must be estimated at no less than a dozen leagues, one could see the column of water spurting from the blowhole of the great animal. His dimensions must be something preternatural. To fly is, therefore, the course to be suggested by ordinary prudence. But we have not come into this part of the world to be prudent. Such is my uncle's determination. We, accordingly, continue to advance. The nearer we come, the loftier is the spouting water. What monster can fill himself with such huge volumes of water, and then unceasingly spout them out of such lofty jets? At eight o'clock in the evening, reckoning as above ground, where there is day and night, we are not more than two leagues from the mighty beast. Its long, black, enormous, mountainous body lies on the top of the water like an island. But then sailors have been said to have gone ashore on sleepy whales, mistaking them for land. Is it illusion, or is it fear? Its length cannot be less than a thousand fathoms. What then is this sentatious monster of which no cuvier ever thought? It is quite motionless, and presents the appearance of sleep. The sea seems unable to lift him upwards. It is rather the waves which break on his huge and gigantic frame. The water spout, rising to a height of five hundred feet, breaks in sprays with a dull, sullen roar. We advance, like senseless lunatics, towards this mighty mass. I honestly confess that I was abjectly afraid. I declared that I would go no farther. I threatened in my terror to cut the sheet of the sail. I attacked the professor with considerable acrimony, calling him foolhardy, mad, I know not what. He made no answer. Suddenly the imperturbable Hans once more pointed his finger to the menacing object. Holm. An island, cried my uncle. An island, I replied, shrugging my shoulders at this poor attempt at deception. Of course it is, cried my uncle, bursting into a loud and joyous laugh. But the water spout. Geyser, said Hans. Yes, of course, a geyser, replied my uncle still laughing. A geyser like those common in Iceland. Jets like this are the great wonders of the country. At first I would not allow that I had been so grossly deceived. What could be more ridiculous than to have taken an island for a marine monster? But kick as one may, one must yield to evidence, and I was finally convinced of my error. It was nothing, after all, but a natural phenomenon. As we approached nearer and nearer, the dimensions of the liquid sheaf of waters became truly grand and stupendous. The island had, at a distance, presented the appearance of an enormous whale whose head rose high above the water. The geyser, a word the Icelanders pronounce, Geyser, and which signifies fury, rose majestically from its summit. Dull detonations are heard every now and then, and the enormous jet, taken as it were with sudden fury, shakes its plume of vapour and bounds into the first layer of the clouds. It is alone, neither spurts of vapour nor hot springs around it and the whole volcanic power of that region is concentrated in one sublime column. The rays of electric light mix with this dazzling sheaf, every drop as it falls assuming the prismatic colours of the rainbow. Let us go on shore, said the professor after some minutes of silence. It is necessary, however, to take great precaution in order to avoid the weight of falling waters, which would cause the raft to founder in an instant. Hans, however, steers admirably and brings us to the other extremity of the island. I was the first to leap on the rock. My uncle followed, while the eider duck hunter remained still, like a man above any childish sources of astonishment. We were now walking on granite mixed with siliceous sandstone, the soil shivered under our feet like the sides of boilers in which overheated steam is forcibly confined. It is burning. We soon came in sight of the little central basin from which rose the geyser. I plunged a thermostat into the water which ran bubbling from the centre and it marked a heat of a hundred and sixty-three degrees. This water, therefore, came from some place where the heat was intense. This was singularly in contradiction with the theories of Professor Hardwig. I could not help telling him my opinions on the subject. Well, said he sharply, and what does that prove against my doctrine? Nothing, replied I dryly, seeing that I was running my head against foregone conclusions. Nevertheless, I am compelled to confess that until now we have been most remarkably fortunate, and that this voyage is being accomplished in most favourable conditions of temperature, but it appears evident, in fact certain that we shall sooner or later arrive at one of those regions where the central heat will reach its utmost limits and will go far beyond all the possible gradations of thermometers. Visions of the Hades of the ancients, believed to be in the centre of the earth, floated through my imagination. We shall, however, see what we shall see. That is the professor's favourite phrase now. Having christened the volcanic island by the name of his nephew, the leader of the expedition turned away and gave the signal for embarkation. I stood still, however, for some minutes, gazing upon the magnificent geyser. I soon was able to perceive that the upwards tendency of the water was irregular. Now it diminished in intensity, and then, suddenly, it regained new vigour, which I attributed to the variation of the pressure of the accumulated vapours in its reservoir. At last, we took our departure, going carefully round the projecting and rather dangerous rocks of the southern side. Hans had taken advantage of this brief halt to repair the raft. Before we took our final departure from the island, however, I made some observations to calculate the distance we had gone over, and I put them down in my journal. Since we left Port Gretchen, we had travelled 270 leagues, more than 800 miles, on this great inland sea. We were, therefore, 620 leagues from Iceland, and exactly under
1: England.